there is no alternative way so far discovered of improving the lot of the ordinary people that can hold a candle to the productive activities that are unleashed by a free enterprise system. But it seems to reward not virtue as much as ability to manipulate the system. Uh, and what does reward virtue? You think the uh, communist commissar rewards virtue? You think, excuse me, if you'll pardon me, do you think American presidents reward virtue? Do they choose their appointees on the basis of the virtue of the people appointed or on the basis of their political clout? Is it really true that political self-interest is nobler somehow than economic self-interest? You know, I think you're taking a lot of things for granted. And just tell me where in the world you find these angels who are going to organize society for us. Well, I don't even trust you to do that. Welcome to the Noted Bitcoin Podcast. This is your co-host, Pierre, and you have your other co-host here, Michael Goldstein, a.k.a. Bitstein. Hey, Pierre. How's it going? Good, good. How are you? I'm doing well. Yeah, I just finished adding a couple of buttons to BitcoinX.com so that people can filter pull requests more easily. Fantastic. What, what are some of those buttons? So there's, um, well, the, the existing button was open pull requests, and that just filtered for anything that had not been closed or merged. Um, and the three new buttons I added one is ready for review, and basically that looks at what what could hypothetically be merged. You know that it, what doesn't not need to get rebased, um, and what is passing uh, continuous integration. So CI continuous integration basically runs all of the Bitcoin automated tests to make sure that there aren't regressions, um, and then also that the title doesn't have work in progress in it either. So those presumably all of those pull requests are ready to have someone take a look at them and review them. And the third button is ready for maintainer. So that on top of what I just listed adds that there have been two reviews, but this isn't perfect because I'm counting like concept ACK as a review, which a maintainer like wouldn't really, you know, merge something if it just has two concept acts. You'd you'd want someone to actually do a code review, but I figure it's it's better than nothing. Um, it also it it reduces the list of two hundred fifty pull requests to forty, which I think is much more manageable for uh, a maintainer. Um, yeah. And then the fourth button uh, adds another filter. Uh, it's, it's, so the fourth button is called user facing only, and it adds a filter for three different kinds of labels. Uh, RPC, which is kind of like the API that um, programmers can use to query Bitcoin, uh, wallet and GUI, graphical user interface. And so those um, it, that, that filter is so that if you're interested in only reviewing pull requests that are going to be noticeable to users um, and that's kind of that's a criteria among some developers is that like they w don't want to fiddle with some kind of 
backend refactoring of something that doesn't interest them. They want to be focused on user-facing features. Um, so that that adds a filter for those labels. Uh, and, and so if you go to like ready for maintainer plus user-facing only, then now you're down to 19 pull requests. So have have your pick among those uh, for for people who are interested in uh, reviewing some some code. That's great. Um, I was happy to get my second commit merged into uh, or second PR merged merged into the Bitcoin Core repository. This one slightly less trivial than the first one. Well, uh, you can't get more trivial than the first one. No, not only was it a typo, a one-letter typo in a comment, it was a one-letter typo in a comment that I didn't even find. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I, I think that it, it is important for people to realize that like, there's a, a, a learning curve. And so like, it's, it's totally acceptable that your first pull request or even your first 10 are not like you adding a massive new feature, you know, like you're just getting to learn the process of contributing code to this project, learning your way around mm -hmm. the code base and all of this. So like if I, if I go, if I look at like my past pull requests, I think there's like a steady progression of like doing a little more every time, something a little more involved. Yeah. And I remember even, even that first one, I, uh, I, I learned a bit about, you know, just some basic Git stuff that I just had never had to make use of uh, because you, you, of course, like you fork the Bitcoin code into your own. So it was like Bitstein slash Bitcoin. Um, and, you know, for whatever reason, before that, I just had never needed to have an upstream uh, Git remote. So getting that set up and learning how to communicate with both, you know, my uh, local fork as well as the upstream one, um, as well as keeping those in sync. And then also going into the, you know, co contributing doc um, on Bitcoin and, and learning what are the rules? Because like when you, as you can see from your, your website, there's just so many uh, PRs uh, to go through. Uh, you really want to use uh, high quality communication to be able to, you know, get through to the uh, maintainers and reviewers. Just, you know, what is it specifically that this thing does? Um, uh, my second one that I got in this week was an uh, update to... Uh, uh, some documentation code for the Unix and Mac OS X uh, build instructions because I realized that there was a section referenced but didn't actually exist. Um, so that needed some updating. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that those those documentations could use some love in general because, for example, like what, what you added um, was the same information as that's in another document. And so mm -hmm. clearly there's some like refactoring that could be done there. Um, right. But... Uh, Marco, I think it was Marco uh, actually brought that up and how um, there's also just uh, build configuration options are going to be shared among a lot of the um, uh, operating systems. So that should be sort of something that's in one place. You know, you, you don't want to be repeating yourself so many times. Um, and even I, I noticed just going through this, you know, I, I had never had a reason to go look at some of the, you know, build instructions. I don't, I don't work with, uh, BSD, uh, but you do see there's, there's also the fact that each build instruction, uh, document seems to have a very different structure. Like they're all 
written completely independently. Um, and so it would be nice, for instance, I think, if uh, each one of them like followed a certain form. Yeah, and that's that's an area where you don't have to be a C++ wizard to do it at all. You don't even have to know C++ at all. Uh, you could just be a, you know, a, a DevOps person who uh, has written documentation for how to build things before, you know, or a, a technical writer uh, to, mm -hmm. to be able to contribute to Bitcoin Core. Um, and so I think that like there's there's opportunities for for everyone. Yeah, well, and even this, like the, the reason I came across this was because I was I was doing some uh, compiling of the code on my Mac myself, um, which I hadn't done in a very long time. So I was having to just, you know, go through the instructions and, uh, you know, take it take it line by line and do things the, the hard way. Um, and just going through that, I noticed uh, problems and the best thing to do, you know, is I guess it's sort of a a Jocko thing is just, you know, get after it. You know, if you see something, just take care of it right then and there. Yep, yep. That's a good philosophy to have. All right, uh, let's uh, take a, a listener question here. Um, this is from at Vakeraj. Uh, that's V-A-K-E-R-A-J. And he's got a fairly controversial question. It's not as controversial as the, as the last Q&A question we had, which was about... Uh, I think the block transaction fees and the block size limit, right? Uh, <laughs> but it's up there. It's pretty controversial. The question is, is it ethical to get your friends addicted to drugs so that they buy more Bitcoin to spend on the dark net? So I, I, I don't know if it's ethical. I, okay. I don't think it's ethical, but I also don't think that you can like get your friends addicted to drugs. That seems like a, a tough putt. That's probably as hard. Challenge as, accepted. Well, it, it seems to me that that would be as Guys, hard next as, week we're going to have Pierre on just like snorting cocaine right on camera and stuff. Yeah. Well. He brought that onto himself. Uh, all right. <laughs> uh, but actually, so uh, more seriously, though, I think that the this wouldn't really pump up the price. Right. It's just like it's a stupid app coin uh, usage, a, a utility of Bitcoin, not a uh, not a way of propping up the price. Yeah, I think the marginal benefits that the network would have from that additional sort of usage of the network. It's like uh, transaction fee pressure. Is yeah, it's not something I want to like ruin a friendship over. Uh, and, and like you said, like. I don't think it would actually be good for the value of Bitcoin until after they're addicted to drugs and buying, they start to realize how, oh, Bitcoin actually is interesting. I should hold on to it instead of buying drugs. And I actually have heard references uh, on Twitter, uh, so I know that they're 100% true. Um, you know, stories of, there was a story of like a Lyft driver who was talking about how his son was addicted to drugs and then he came across Bitcoin and his time preference started lowering basically. I mean, he didn't use those exact words, but yeah. he basically, he got off drugs and got on Bitcoin, uh, which is way more of a hell of a drug than uh, anything you're going to find on the dark net. Yeah. So I think that the answer to the question is that it is not ethical to get your friends addicted to drugs, but it is ethical to get your friends who are addicted to drugs to stop 
doing drugs so that they can spend that money buying bitcoins instead of buying cocaine. Yes, it's it's ethical to get your friends addicted to Bitcoin. Yeah. For their health. All right, next question. Um, ignoring for the moment improvements in minor efficiency, if the price of Bitcoin was to rise 10x or say 100x over a period long enough where we could consider the difficulty adjustment to be floating, which is every two weeks uh, modulo a, a limitation on just how much it can adjust, but... Um, what would you predict would happen to network-wide electrical consumption should this relationship be linear? Uh, yes, the relationship uh, would be linear. And um, yeah, so every two weeks you would have electricity. Well, so you would have the, the difficulty adjusting. But really, I mean, the, um, the electricity consumption would be increasing even you know, in between those time periods. What would be changing is the time between blocks, right? So if uh, the price goes up, like, let's say the price doubles in a few days. And that means that I think that, you know, obviously it, there's a lag time for miners to get hardware and to put it online. But let's say they could instantly deploy hardware. You would have an instant doubling of the hash rate. And then you would get blocks every five minutes. Uh, so that means that, you know, until the next uh, difficulty adjustment and then blocks are back to being 10 minutes. Um, but the electro electrical consumption would uh, immediately double, uh, assuming that they have like instant access to hardware, which obviously is a ridiculous assumption. And that's why when you go look at the hash rate, uh, it does not mirror the price. Uh, but it does uh, generally tend towards that direction. So I know that uh, the difficulty adjustment, the the limit going up or down is by a factor of about four. So it's like if, if uh, the two weeks actually only takes like two days, um, it gets set to just having been four and it, it changes the, the amount just by four. So I'm I wonder just how high the price would have to go to be and, and how quickly to like reach those levels. Yeah, that would be a really awesome scenario. Um, and it, well, <laughs> I, mean, actually, I, don't, I don't know if it's the, happening. The thing before, I missed in my explanation uh, is that the difficulty adjustment would only take one week if uh, if hash rate doubled. Right. Because that that two weeks is based on 10 minute block times. Mm -hmm, exactly. All right, that's a that's an interesting question, um, but I don't know that there's a lot of depth there. Um, but yeah, let's hope the price goes up 10x in one week. Um, yeah, let's uh, let's test this theory out, everyone. Just go buy, 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 buy. <laughs> yeah, for science. For science. Uh, <laughs> this is a oh, and that that question was uh, from Chris. Chris, you know who you are. Uh, Chris, sorry, we're skipping your next question because it's long and we just answered one of your questions. Uh, and now the next one I'm going to skip also. That's just trolling. Um, another one is someone asking to be on our show. Uh, all I'm right. <laughs> Here's a more serious one. Um, <laughs> outside of Bitcoin Core, and there's a typo in there, but I actually don't want to pronounce it. Uh, regardless of <laughs> coin... Which implementation has the best software developers? 
cryptographers and process? Well, I don't know much about uh, Libitcoin's uh, software practices, so I can't speak much to that. But um, BTCD is is a pretty impressive project, just in the sense that since they were building from scratch, they took it very seriously. Um, so it's a very well engineered uh, piece of software, very highly commented, all of that. And I know that. Um, especially through his work on Lightning Network, Roast Beef has contributed greatly to it. Um, and I, I know that there's, you know, cool things going on over there, but um, that's not that's not my cult. So I don't, yeah. I only have limited knowledge. Yeah, I mean, so if, if you love uh, Golang, go check out BTCD and uh, ha- hack, hack with them. Uh, next question have either of you used a Bitcoin tax manager service to track capital gains? Well, it could also be to track capital losses. Let's not exclude that possibility. Um, if so, what would you recommend? Uh, no, I have not. Michael, have you? Uh, I, I have not. All right. That was from Ad Custom. Sorry, Ad Custom. Uh, maybe we'll have someone on the show that has. We need to talk to someone who has sold Bitcoins before and had to think about that. Yeah, right. Like that's kind of one of the prerequisites. Uh, you, you don't have to use, and this is the best way to avoid the IRS. Don't sell your bitcoins. <laughs> All right. Uh, do you believe that a sovereign attack is a viable threat to Bitcoin as it increasingly cannibalizes the USD's global money status? How resilient would Bitcoin be to such an attack? And that's from Adam. So this is a. I think as as that goes on, it becomes less viable. Uh, it becomes less valuable. V- uh, viable. Viable. Like the the the, the threat uh, from a sovereign entity, um, and the more Bitcoin goes on, I would expect the more likely that the the sovereignty would just uh, give into it. Um, and there's many reasons why. Uh, I think I, I think the most interesting one was Daniel's article, uh, Bitcoin Shroud of Subtlety and Allure which talked about the fact that um, in order to know to attack Bitcoin because you see it as a viable threat, you inherently have to have seen it as a viable threat, which then pits your own self-interest against your uh, loyalty to a government agency. Um, And especially when most government agencies, um, they ultimately get their cash flow a lot from, you know, the, the Federal Reserve and, and taxation via inflation. Um, but that being said, it's really only the Fed that has like this sort of probably has this sort of feeling of impending doom upon seeing uh, a competing currency. Yeah, I guess what we could update Daniel's article with is that these government agents are going to start an ICO. That's how they're going <laughs> to exit scam. And so get ready to see like a, a, you know, U.S. Army ICO. Hey, we're issuing these army tokens and, you know, you can support the troops by buying them. And that's how that's how they'll it won't be like the Fed is going to convince the military to go and, you know, shoot your dog so that you use dollars. yeah, I mean, that would be a tough sell, especially when, um, as a currency, I mean, first of all, I mean, you know, the, the other thing is that, you know, the rise of Bitcoin is, is 
likely going to be a rather exponential one. Now, that doesn't mean that it's going to happen overnight until it does. Um, but that, that long process still, like, I mean, Bitcoin since, you know, the beginning has been growing exponentially, even if it doesn't feel that way. Um, and because of this, the, I actually forgot the, the exact point I was, I was going to make. Um, oh, I, I guess like the, nope, I lost it. <laughs> That's all right. The, the thing too We're going to win like, people. Like how... <laughs> What are the attack vectors? Like, how are you actually doing this attack? So, you know, are you just doing a denial of service attack where you're basically like censoring the internet and preventing people from accessing mm -hmm. Bitcoin? Oh, I, I remembered what I was thinking. Yeah. Uh, it has to do with the fact that, you know, when, when people imagine the government shutting something down, you also have to remember that, you know, it's not, it's not like, government magic that's happening. There's actual individuals operating um, in the government making decisions and that leads to uh, something happening. And uh, yeah, like if you wanted to send cops or the army or whatever it is after someone, well, we also have to wonder like, what is it, you know, to keep, to keep the, the soldiers on your side, you do have to pay them. Um, you know, we have had drafts before, which uh, I would consider a, a form of slavery, um, you know, softer than much worse forms of slavery that have existed, obviously. But, you know, it's people, people are forced to work without, um, you know, getting what they deserve in return. Um, if those people, you know, what happens if they start demanding Bitcoins themselves? Um, yeah, and that's always to me been the the hole in the um, chartalist argument of taxation like backs of money because it's like all right you're looking at the revenue side of the government but you're not really looking at the expenditure side so I don't think that like the welfare recipients are super excited to receive your worthless tokens if they're unusable in the rest of society. Uh, and same for the military or the police or the firemen. So ultimately, like your government has to be taking in revenue in the form of something that others value uh, and not just because, you know, it, it's like it turns into like this weird circular argument of like, oh, yeah, but the cop has to pay taxes. So he's going to want dollars and then he gets paid in dollars. It's like, no, your argument's falling apart. Just accept that chartalism is dead. So two things on that. One, the other thing with chartalism there is just the fact that like how many countries have had taxation and yet their currencies fell apart. You know, why why did Weimar Republic have hyperinflation? Why did Venezuela have hyperinflation? Like these these places have armies and taxation and yet the currency failed. Um the other thing is uh, you said, oh, they're going to issue ICOs. Well, the way you just described it, you realized, well, the dollar is an ICO. They originally did like an airdrop on gold hodlers, I guess. Um, and then that's 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 the difference, right? Is that this time it's just going to be like a pure pump and dump to benefit the insiders and it'll break everyone's uh you know uh illusions UTXOs and uh, well the, the 
people, you know, will stop thinking of the military as being a bunch of uh, innocent or not innocent, but people, you know, working in their best interest uh, if they start a Ponzi scheme. And this happened in Albania. The government, like, was endorsing Ponzi schemes during the 90s. And it led to the Albanian Civil War and 2,000 people died. So I don't think it's outside, like, the realm of possibility that maybe not in the U.S., but, like, in other countries, you'll see, like, the government essentially try to scam its people with an ICO. (laughs) And Well, I mean, we saw Venezuela. Yeah. Well, yeah, right. (laughs) It's already happened. Now, I don't know. have, have Have they, has a scam, like, come to fruition or is it still in the setting up phase i really i I actually have no clue um although i think i may have seen something that suggested that it existed and it was like basically crashing um well but that is interesting like you know we kind of have the the first world privilege of imagining you know oh the u.s how is the u.s going to handle its relationship to bitcoin but there is going to be something tragically hilarious about um, other nations around the world who don't have as much capital and have, have way more corruption and all of that. It's, it's going to be some uh, pretty intense reality TV. Twitter is going to be lit. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, all right. Next question. If Facebook adopted or created a cryptocurrency other than Bitcoin that had a sound monetary policy with a fixed maximum supply, what percentage chance would you rate that token at becoming the global reserve currency? And that's from Jason uh, at I wear a hoodie. Uh, so I'm, I, yeah, I'm going to say like close to zero. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd say zero as well, because the, the so the, the problem with the question is that it is Assuming that a centralized issuer of a money like Facebook could resist the temptation to create more units as this increased in value. And mm-hmm. I just find that to be wildly unrealistic. Like Mark Zuckerberg right. uh, would want to print, print more Facebook tokens to go and buy Apple, you know, to like go and acquire shit. Yeah, well, just like my, I, I had a tweet yesterday or the day before is, you know, if people can print money, they will print money. And we see this throughout history. Um, everywhere they could, they did. And that's, that's exactly why we needed a decentralized currency, because you cannot trust a centralized entity to uh, keep things, uh, you know, sound. But the other thing with that is, you know, as far as, you know, a sovereign attack being a viable threat to Bitcoin, it's harder to it's hard to imagine the government actually being able to shut down bitcoin for for a variety of reasons just because of how how decentralized it is like how do you delete all of the copies of the blockchain how do you how do you actually stop all the full nodes from running all all these things it's it's extremely difficult you can use propaganda to make people maybe feel uh less safe about using it or ashamed of using it something like that but uh, with Facebook, you know, well, you just put a target on someone's head if you feel threatened by it. Um, so if, if Facebook were to do that, I don't think that the government would have any problem um, taking action 
legal or otherwise against uh, um, Mark Zuckerberg. Um, so that would be very dangerous for him. Um, so my recommendation for Facebook is the same as my recommendation for the United States government, adopt Bitcoin. Yep, ditto, ditto. It's, it's, it's the only way to go. Uh, next question, how do you feel about Andreas Antonopoulos' support for Ethereum? Can you please invite him to discuss on the show or on Twitter? And that's from uh, MF underscore HODL. Uh, Michael, do you have any feelings about Andreas Antonopoulos? <laughs> um, I mean, of course, I have, I have deep feelings about Andreas Antonopoulos. I've never met him, uh, have you? I, I have met him a couple times. Yeah. He's a great guy. Um, I've had I've had great conversations. Uh, this was back in 2013, early 2014. So it was like, it was the good old days. Yeah. Um, although at the time, it was not the good old days. It was like the super latecomer days. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's, uh, he's going to sell books, you know? Um, yeah. It's, I guess it's good business for him. Um, I... I don't. I, I recommend mastering Bitcoin to just about everyone, including non-technical people. Um, but I have no uh, plans on recommending mastering Ethereum. I, I actually. I also recommend mastering Bitcoin to Ethereum people because, based on conversations I've had, Ethereum people know as little about Bitcoin as I know about Ethereum, uh, which is, is is not a good situation to be in. Now. That's that's interesting because I, I would have assumed. I mean, th there was a lot of. Uh, I guess you're referring more to like kind of technical people, or are you no, referring just to Twitter, basically everyone? Twitter trolls. Okay. Uh, the the investors, okay. the the Ethereum investors especially. It, that is that is surprising though that they would they would have that uh, position because uh, Ethereum has always had the framing of like, well, it's better than Bitcoin, so it's kind of weird that you don't know what you're better than. Right. I, and yeah, that's, that's true. Although, I mean, you can make the same argument, you know, a little, a little more nuanced of, uh, w with regards to Bitcoin people not knowing Ethereum. It's like, oh, well, how do you know that Bitcoin is better than Ethereum if you don't know, you know, all the different, um, types of full nodes that we have, uh, <laughs> you know, some of which can sync and others not, but Yeah. Um, so I, I think that it's, it's great that he is writing another book. I mean, I guess that's good for his business. Uh, I think that there's more books that could be written about Bitcoin itself. So yeah. it's, it would well, be Jimmy, Jimmy song is writing his, so, uh, yeah. that, that'll probably be very good. Um, I can only imagine it's going to be good based on all the other content he puts up. Um, the other thing too, with Andreas is, uh, you know, that this shouldn't come to surprise to people because he has uh, for a long time spoken of, you know, uh, a multi-coin universe. Um, I remember old comments about, um, you know, every kid's going to be on their phone making their own cryptocurrency. Um, so that, that, that was his vision. And so it's, you know, he's, he's sticking with that vision. Yeah. Uh, and so that's, it's okay for him to not be a maximalist. I don't, I don't hold it against him, but uh, it is um, it is challenging when. Well, okay, no, this isn't really challenging. I feel like this was a bizarre Twitter exchange. Uh, someone was like, "How can you recommend mastering Bitcoin?" Because 
some noob is going to go read it and then they're going to go want to look at, you know, what else is Andreas Antonopoulos read? And then he, they would go, or what, what else has he written? And they would go read Mastering Ethereum and then they're like no longer Bitcoin people. It's like, well, for, I should, we should be okay with someone reading Mastering Ethereum. Like the, it's, it's not like these books have some kind of conversion spell on whoever reads them. And they can do a comparative analysis between Bitcoin and Ethereum and make a fully informed decision, uh, you know, in either direction. And I, I'd be interested in hearing what their comparative analysis is. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, when I was in, in high school. Uh, one of the high schools I went to, uh, you needed a parent signature uh, to, to take out a copy of the Communist Manifesto. Um, and I had no interest in communism um, in terms of an ideology, ideology that I wanted to personally uh, invest myself in. Um, but I also like just wanted to read it. And I actually, I always imagine like airdropping hundreds of copies of the Communist Manifesto in there just because, you know, you should have access to this information. And, you know, uh, the reason that I haven't dug into Ethereum uh, is really because it has no, uh, it speaks to none of my interests in Bitcoin, which has everything to do with monetary policy and the technology that it takes to secure a sound monetary policy. So just the fact that Ethereum doesn't have a sound monetary policy means that I'm less interested in it. If Ethereum, on the other hand, had had a, the, the exact same monetary policy as um, Bitcoin, then I would very much have imagined myself you know, wanting to learn everything about how it works so I can see, you know, is this better? Because as far as if it's better money, it's absolutely not better money uh, than Bitcoin. So I don't care. <laughs> right. It's as simple as that. Um, all right. Let's see. Next question from Brian from New Zealand. Um, so he lives in the future, so he should know the answer to this question. But uh, I'm not a fan of Bitcoin forks but oh, i find phew. the difficulty adjustment <laughs> of bcash very interesting the 144 block moving average seems like a better system than bitcoin's current system as it is able to adjust relatively quickly to sudden drops in the hash rate do you think there is merit to the moving average is there an argument to implement something similar to bitcoin what would be the reasons for and against uh so this this goes back to our previous discussion about how bitcoin has a difficulty adjustment every two weeks Apparently, Bcash has a, a kind of a rolling difficulty adjustment. Um, I think it's I think it's bike shedding. I, I you know like we we could mm -hmm. dig into like some some kind of argument for or against, but ultimately I don't know that it matters at all. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I basically feel the same way, and perhaps there's some interesting thing, but um just by virtue of how difficult it is to have a successful fork of Bitcoin, uh, changing the difficulty adjustment um, is not the hill that I want to die on uh, because the two week, that's, that's what our monetary policy is, is sort of based on in a way. It's, it's since, since any of us have entered Bitcoin, our prediction of the future distribution of newly allocated bitcoins has been based on the two-week calculation so it's a it's a major shift um to be changing that just psychologically um and, and all of that so uh 
yeah, it's just like it's it's too much bike shedding for me to want to uh, have us go through like some kind of weird civil war um, when I actually don't even know. Like, you know, I'm sh maybe Greg Maxwell has some post out there that goes into all of the details of why it's stupid or whatever. Yeah. Um, giving out the the um, you know uh, Bitcoin core fatwa on. Uh, his toxic, <laughs> toxic trolling of moving averages. Um, yeah, but yeah. So, but what, I, like, what, I actually, what would be the I benefit? No well, I don't see even like a tangible benefit at all. I, I, I guess it's just the idea that the hash rate is able to uh, move more in line with the demand or something. I, I don't know. Um, but okay. you're right. Like, I don't think that the the marginal benefit of even finding out is enough. To, I think merit a discussion in the context of having so much other work to do. Yeah. Yep. All right. Next question. Could you explain the mechanism by which a lightning user that cheats is punished by having his funds taken by the other party? Um, no, I can't actually, we would need a lightning person to come on and explain that. Michael, do you, uh, um, well, I, I, I don't know how to, like do a good ELI five kind of thing. That's okay. Let's not let's not waste. Time I don't fully have it. What I what I yeah. will, will recommend if you want like the real basic kind of walkthrough. Um, what originally helped me when I was trying to work through it was uh, I think it was Aaron Van Wordham's uh, Lightning series from I think it was twenty sixteen um, in Bitcoin Magazine, um, and he he goes through the process of starting with just a basic Bitcoin transaction, then describing. Um, the contract of a payment, uh, just a, the, the classic payment channel, um, and then gets to the HTLC. And basically that, that punishment has to do with a hash, like when there's the HTLC is hash time lock, contra time lock contract, and there's a hash that's shared every step of the way, and that contains, like on, on the next step, you receive... Um, a secret to uh, nullify things, but basically that that hash is where this ability to to uh, do that comes from, in conjunction with the time lock. Because in order to, um, if, if someone cheats, then you have the information necessary to be able to take all the money back, um, and the person who's cheating because it's supposed to be like a more valid transaction so to speak um takes however long that that uh check sequence verify is supposed to be so maybe it has to be 100 blocks so you have 100 blocks to get a transaction from the hash information that you uh by virtue of the contract are able to broadcast immediately so if you can get out in in five blocks you get everything back um, and that cheater won't because his transaction was going to take a hundred blocks or whatever to to go through. Um, but like I said, like that's it was a really bad explanation. But uh, Aaron's article in Bitcoin Magazine might um, do a pretty good job of uh, helping you through the the logic of getting there. Excellent. So yeah, go check that out. And actually, we we already mentioned mastering Bitcoin, but there's a section on Lightning in there too that that explains. Yeah, that. in the second edition. Um. Yeah, yeah. Don't get a first edition thinking that you're being all cool and whatnot. You're just leaving out useful information. Uh, 
All right, so that was good. Uh, let's skip this one. Let's go to Stefan Levera's question. Uh, Stefan here is trolling us. He says, will Bitcoin adoption occur faster in the Northern Hemisphere or in the Southern Hemisphere? Um, northern. I think in the Northern, just because it takes so long to propagate blocks to Australia. <laughs> So, whereas, like... You get to live in the future, but you also have to realize you're alone out there. Although, yeah. actually, I wonder, how long is... Does it take longer for a block, or, I mean, for, for any internet packet, right, uh, to get from China to Australia or from China to New York or San Francisco? I mean, obviously, it takes longer to get to New York than it does to get to San Francisco, but... I, oh, yeah, like, what's the physical distance... Or like the speed of light well that or also the quality of the cables between the continents yeah i was about to say it might not even be a, a speed of light question it might be like the other thing too is that like it may be the case that from china to australia it has to go through singapore but there's a direct connection from china to uh you know to to the u.s or does yeah. it have to go through japan or does it like go through Hawaii or something? I, I don't know how. I mean, the fastest the fastest uh, block propagation you're going to get, you need to connect straight to the Bogdanovs. Yeah. Uh, on their um, satellite there, phone. Yeah, there's a couple other problems with the Southern Hemisphere, though. One of them is that when you send any blockchain data to the uh, Southern Hemisphere, it actually has to flip Endianness. Right. So like a little Endian has to get flipped to big Endian and vice versa. Um, just like the, the toilet water, you know, flushes in the opposite direction. Um, so that, that itself, even if you get the blocks propagating fast enough, you have to deal with those, that, that, that issue. Um, the other thing, um, on a less serious note, is that there's just uh, more people in uh, the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and I would imagine, I, I would actually be curious, I mean, there, there is like more capital um, just in the north. So while the southern hemisphere has uh, a lot of places like Venezuela and perhaps Argentina um, that I think would be um, good for actually adopting, you know, Bitcoin, like I think there's going to be increased demand in these places. Um, All right. Unfortunately, yeah. they also have less capital that they can actually put towards it. Well, since Stefan isn't here to defend the southern hemisphere, I will steel man his position and say that because Bitcoin appeals to the criminal element and Ooh. Australia is a former prison colony, uh, it is in their DNA to be interested in Bitcoin. Okay. Yeah, no, that, that is fair. And, you know, also in the Southern Hemisphere are Colombian drug cartels. Oh, yeah, so I forgot. Colombian We're not just talking about cartels. Southeast Asia. We're talking about, like, South America as well and Africa. And Africa. Yeah, so, like, I think the, uh, the cocaine cowboys are going to, you know, hook up with the, you know, guys out in the outbacks, out, outback. There's going to be some incredible bants. Um, kangaroos are going to be smuggling blockchain data everywhere. They're going to fill kangaroos just to the brim with uh open dimes um and yeah i don't know like it, it could be it could be a close race yeah and then in africa he has chiefy uh on his side so that's 
might tilt oh yeah things. chiefy i don't think he's uh, been talking to anyone in the the northern hemisphere about you know taking over banks yeah i mean if, if an african central bank uh becomes the first central bank to you know have bitcoins in reserves then it's game over south wins all right um on to the next question this is from uh mark finelli uh <laughs> He, he he also said it's from at Pierre is a closet wino, which I think is is because when we went out to have a steak dinner, I had a couple of glasses of wine, and that is that that is the hallmark of a wino. Did uh did you buy the wine with Bitcoin? Uh no, I made Mark put it on his credit card. Okay. So that's unfortunate. So you, you got addicted to wine, but not because you wanted to use Bitcoin to buy it on the dark net. Right. Mm. See, that's definitely unethical. Well, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I went on the dark net. They just don't sell any wine there. <laughs> you only get, like, moonshine. Yeah, moonshine. So, so you, I guess maybe on the dark net they would eventually have, like, rare bottles of wine that were stolen from a wine cellar so you can't really sell them on the you know on the legal market but yeah that has not developed yet i'm looking forward to that i guess <laughs> um now don't get me wrong folks uh i'm, I'm not a closet wino i i enjoy wine responsibly um all right the question is the killer app after immutable transactions on a perfectly scarce ledger of credits and debits, aka money, of Bitcoin is interest payments. I, I don't know that I agree with you, Mark, but okay. As, assuming one is not dealing with an economy like Venezuela, where Bitcoin might be a viable medium of exchange by force. Okay. But in the first world, as one would have to be a moron to spend principal Bitcoin in the US, Euro, or yet nations. At least for now, pre-Bitcoinization. I, I don't. I, well, we talked about this on a previous episode, but I, I don't think one has to be a moron to, uh, you know, rebalance a little bit and uh, maybe buy a Lambo if that's what that's what your heart so desires. Uh, the money money is meant to be. Uh, you 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 acquire money, and then you hold it, and then you spend it on capital or consumption i don't think that we should be judging people for doing that although we we can make judgments about their their particular decisions on what to spend it on right like yeah um, just make fun of their taste but not the fact that they have a different time preference yeah uh and then so let's get to the question uh i believe <laughs> the only reason this app slash idea is not here in driving massive bitcoinization of every part of the first world is lack of insurance for deposits, although that insurance is likely to come. So my question being, again, after money, are interest payments Bitcoin's killer app in store of value nations? Uh, yeah, go ahead, Michael. Oh, I mean, I guess, uh, I guess Mark, like I, I disagree with like kind of using the word killer app like this, or the term killer app. Um, the killer app, of Bitcoin is Bitcoin itself is is the money. That was, um, but he he said that right. That was he said after after money. Oh, okay, that's it. That's true. He did say after number um, two. We're we're aiming for number two here. Is 
is interest payments the number two? Well, isn't that just like what a money like that's yeah, like you give loans money. in it, and I do think that'll be a, like a massive uh, part of the economy. Um, but I don't know. Like there, there's just so like it, it seems like it seems it seems obvious to me that yes, there will be a lot of interest uh, payments, um, but there's a lot of interest payments with like any money. So I don't know if there's anything like special about that with Bitcoin specifically. Right. I, the only special thing I can think of would be, uh, you know, what Stefan or not so, uh, Nick Batia was talking about with uh, Lightning and essentially like putting money into providing liquidity on the Lightning Network. Um, although th there is, so I think what Mark's alluding to is lending bitcoins to short sellers and so like if you go onto like bitfinex or some of these like leverage platforms you can make interest in bitcoins from lending bitcoins out um and there it's like okay true but there someone else is holding your bitcoins for you and even if it's insured there's a reason why the FDIC is the federal deposit insurance company because no private insurance company would ever insure these kinds of, you know, products uh, because the risk is so great. It has to be subsidized by the government. So I don't think that there would ever be deposit insurance on bitcoins, especially if they're being lent out um, and thus you have to self-insure and that's part of why you're making interest in the first place is that you are being compensated for taking on a risk of total capital loss uh, due to either the platform collapsing or due to you know the 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 price moving so quickly that they can't liquidate the collateral and yeah that's it's 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 risk and that's why you make interest but i I don't think that that's going to become increasingly popular. In fact, I think that like the interest rates are not appealing enough for me to get involved with that. Um, mm -hmm. Although, yeah, maybe it'll change one day. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, there are some interesting sort of interest platforms uh, like Unchained Capital. Um, but there's also just, uh, uh, I guess this also points to, you know, what you were saying was pointing to, to this, this feeling that I, I have that in the future, the, the types of loans uh, that people give out, people are going to generally be more conservative than they might be today. Um, you know, especially if you have to sort of take on, you know, actual total capital loss risk. Um, but also just because uh, not loaning out the money means that you're going to be able to earn money anyway. So interest rates are going to have to be a little higher than, you know, uh, deflationary rates. So people people will like, you know, actually give me a real reason why I should hand over bitcoins to you when I can just sit on it and make five percent, um, which is a good thing because then people are going to have better projects to pitch because they really want those coins. Yeah. Uh, so I I just had a I just saw sorry. We're, we're done with that question, but I just saw a tweet um, from someone who was was commenting on our previous episode with, uh, or one of our previous episodes with uh, Alex Gladstein, 
and he asked, I assume the comment about Adam Beck being the dictator of Bitcoin was a sarcastic joke. Uh, and no, of course not. No, it was not. Uh, Didn't he, you see there was there was that great meme that uh, some Bitcoin cash people produced where it was like, you know, the the North Korean. Yeah. Uh, parade and everything with Adam Back's face on it. Like, that was a real picture. I don't think, like, all of us were there. That was, that was at one of the building Bitcoin conferences. Yeah, we paraded in front of our supreme leader, Adam Back. Um, and so I, I, I replied, like, you must not know us very well. <laughs> he said, I haven't heard the podcast before. But after listening for about 10 minutes, I deduced that it was a joke. But first-time listeners might not get the joke. So I, I apologize to any first-time listeners who thought that Adam Back is, in fact, supreme leader of Bitcoin. Uh, I'll correct the record here. Uh, he is not supreme leader of Bitcoin. Uh, but, you know, before the last show, we were joking about, like, pretending that we're sponsored by Square. We should pretend that we're sponsored by Blockstream. <laughs> we should just we should start every episode with, you know, today's episode is brought to you by Blockstream. Uh, connect to their satellite. <laughs> Buy stickers. Don't increase the block weight limit. Uh, okay. Noted. Funded by AXA. Yeah, fund, funded by a Bilderberg group. Uh, voice, voice of Bilderberg. <laughs> Noted radio. <laughs> you know, so, so someone's got to put out the propaganda and uh, brainwash people. Uh, speaking of brainwashing, our next uh, question here is from Jules Bolton. Um, how do you guys see things playing out if the havings... Uh, so this is a question I was wondering, you know, like, is it a having or is it a havening? Uh, I believe it is uh, halving. Because you halven something. Halve, halve, halve is the proper English verb, but halvening is the fun play on happening. Oh, uh, uh, okay. It's that like makes the sense. The happening, the halvening. All right. I'll, I'll use both interchangeably, I guess, because I didn't know they were one was a joke. Uh, but okay. Um, how do things play out if the halvings of the block rewards outpace the price appreciation of Bitcoin? If the block rewards go down in real terms, fewer miners, much higher fees. So obviously, like there's 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 no way to know since we don't know the future. But uh, fewer miners is kind of a an approximation of it because really it's like less hash rate like you might still have the same number of miners in fact you might have more miners with fewer hash rate per miner because things have gotten into like a very uh you know competitive equilibrium and the profit margins are extremely low and there's high turnover uh among miners but um and then much higher fees i think that that gets into the um it's it's kind of like a a question of like if Bitcoin needs this much hash rate, it's not necessarily the case that fees would automatically be at that level or higher. 
like we could have a situation where fees are too low relative to the hash rate that we need, quote unquote. And mm-hmm. I put that in quotes because there isn't really like a level of hash rate that we need per se. Um, I think that we'll, I, I would I would argue today that some people's subjective preferences may make it so that today's hash rate is too low, right? So like if you are someone who is moving $500 million worth of Bitcoin and you are moving it to Jihan because he's buying or you're, you're buying something for, or, well, okay. So if you are receiving $500 million worth of Bitcoins from Jihan because you're buying something, uh, am I getting the direction wrong here? Let's see. Yes. You're receiving Bitcoins. <laughs> you're sending him a private jet. Okay. And so you want to send him the private jet in the next 10 minutes or, you know, in the next hour, let's say. Uh, six confirmations might not be enough. Right. So and it might not be enough because the hash rate is too low. So you might want a higher hash rate. Now, granted, this, this is a far fetched idea, but you, you see the direction I'm going in and that like there isn't a set hash rate that meets everyone's subjective preferences for when do they want statistical finality on their settlement uh, on chain settlement transaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, all this to say that. Uh, yeah, I, ha- I have no idea how it's going to play out. I think the worst case scenario is that we have to wait for a lot of confirmations before uh, we can consider a transaction to be final. Um, or an even worse scenario would be that we have to slightly you know, increase the, uh, the inflation schedule or you know, have a perpetual block reward. But... I really find that to be such an improbable uh, scenario that it's really only trotted out by concern trolls who are pumping their Ethereum bags. I'm just going to say uh, you're lucky that Adam Back is not the supreme leader of Bitcoin uh, after hearing you just even, you know, have the thought. Yeah, he, he may throw me out of the satellite <laughs> and then I have to re-enter uh, the uh, atmosphere. Which is much worse Trust than getting me, the, thrown out of a the helicopter. The Bogdanovs are going to make sure that none of your PRs ever make it into Bitcoin again. Yeah. My, in fact, not only that, but my code reviews will get deleted. <laughs> if you wanted to see censorship, you're going to see censorship now. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I should open a pull request that is a... Uh, this removes the last, like... Or this this keeps the last block reward, you know, in twenty one hundred, and then forty, yeah, twenty one forty, and just start a a shit storm, <laughs> just as a, a a trolling bip. But I don't know. That's I I don't want to burn my reputation on that. That's just make a sock. Yeah, I'll, I will. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I should totally create... Well, now it's ruined because I've publicized yeah, well, it. Well, but... let, let everyone know publicly. I, Pierre Rochard, am going to make a... Uh, sock puppet. I'm going to make a sock. <laughs> uh, I, Pierre yeah. Rochard, are putting on my Groucho Marx glasses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right. So 
Uh, so what I see, what what I do see playing out. So now that I've put out the uh, the improbable scenario that you know is going to get me trolled, um, is that basically? Well, actually, I have something pretty controversial to say. Uh uh. So right now the block weight limit is eight million weight units, uh, which roughly translates into like two to three megabyte blocks if everyone's using SegWit. Um, and you know, there's not like you could have like a, a crazy block that's four megabytes, but from what I understand, that's actually an unrealistic scenario. Um, but let's say, and I think that this is going to be the case that Lightning Network takes off, and that uh, suddenly blocks are getting filled with these uh, opening and closing transactions for the Lightning Network, um, and now block space is much more valuable because one weight unit translates into an arbitrary number of state changes in uh, lightning channels. And uh, because the economy is not perfectly circular and the lightning network is not perfectly liquid, that you know we'll have a lot of opening and closing transactions, uh, those 8 million weight units are going to get consumed rather quickly. And the transaction fees are going to dramatically increase. We might, you know, see like what would today be like a hundred dollar per transaction fee or maybe $500 or a thousand dollars. And eventually uh, there is so much fee pressure that, and on top of that, you know, over the next couple of decades, we're going to see uh, homes have fiber optic more and more. I actually just got Fios installed at my house, and now I have like gigabit internet. And you know, I I, I grant that I'm on the cutting edge on this, but um, we'll see that become more and more uh, common. Eventually, it might make sense to have a hard fork that increases, or or a soft fork if it's possible, uh, that increases uh, the the block weight limit, and or you know the equivalent of it in whatever kind of crazy ass, uh, soft fork does it. Um, but the, yeah, that, that means that over time we would have, uh, not only high fees, but a lot of high fees. So volume and price and that maybe, maybe it would be even greater than the block reward itself. Um, and maybe we'll have people complaining about how, uh, where you know have too much hash rate and uh, fees are too high and blah 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 and you know we can continue ignoring them, uh, but yeah that's that's kind of a, a vision I would lay out. Yeah, I mean I think the the good thing with that kind of vision is that's a it's a rather long term vision for increasing the block weight so to speak. Yeah, it's the I kind mean of thing there's... that you you wouldn't be just arbitrarily increasing it you would be taking in the empirical data of how people are actually using the network and and how safe you think such an increase would actually be on the network versus um, the actual like i said empirics of the the prices on the network of, of just what people are willing to pay for fees and how many transactions there actually are and i think because of all of that such a hard fork would have a much better chance of, you know, being pushed by people who are interested in the actual 
Bitcoin network governance protocol, so to speak, the actual process. Um, and thus, it would get, I think, really good discussion. You know, it's hard to know if we if it would ever change or if it, it or maybe it would, um, but it would actually be able to go through that process in a in a reasonable manner. Um, in the way that it's supposed to, rather than just kind of thrust upon everyone. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's no, there's no urgency to this at all. Um, and so... Yeah, the network's not going to collapse because too many people are using it. No. So... No. All, all you would have is, um, yeah, people would be a little frustrated, I guess. But uh, th- we're, we're used to that at this point. Yeah. Now, I, I would say that... Uh, you know, I, I had a tweet about this before, but just like, you know, the, the important thing here is that because it's not urgent, if there's a new shelling point to be found, you'd be able to find it before you fork, such that the fork would effectively not be contentious um, rather than trying to make up for it after the fork, which I don't think is actually really possible. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more th- with that. And so, like, to, to 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 reiterate what you just said, in my own words, because I think that it's actually, it's, like, a really important point, which is that, like, the consensus, the set of consensus rules that we call Bitcoin, I think that you have to have uh, a, a rough consensus agreement on what they will be in the future um and that you can change you can change the future of bitcoin i don't think and this is exactly what you said i don't think you can change the past of bitcoin and Mm -hmm. say okay bitcoin was bitcoin in the past you know last month but this month bitcoin cash is bitcoin uh, you know, after the long, a year after the hard fork, like no one, that would never work because everyone who bought Bitcoins, uh, during the, that intervening time would be like, what the hell? I just got scammed. Like I didn't buy Bitcoin cash and Bitcoins. I just bought Bitcoins. So mm, like it's, gotta it's buy the index. Yeah. It's inconceivable to me that the 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 bitcoin name would shift to another consensus point after the hard fork it has mm-hmm. to shift before the hard fork that's the reality of the situation even if i even if i felt like you know that should not be the case like you have to admit that that's the case like there there sociologically i don't see like any possibility that that that, that would not uh be the case so um yeah, if 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 you, everyone's not on board with uh, changing Bitcoin's consensus rules beforehand, um, or at least everyone that that you know matters in terms of l- the language we use, right? Which is who's buying Bitcoins is, is the main thing, or who's accepting Bitcoins. Um, but anyway, yeah, uh, you'd also have enough time to just make sure, absolutely sure, that there's not an off by one error. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe maybe have more than like one random uh, GitHub account provide a code review. We and should do we should do the increase block size uh, hard fork as a hot fix. 
Hey guys, sorry. I think that's the that's the proper yeah. network governance is just do it live. Just hot fix. Everyone's at once. What amazed me was people who like to this day will be like, well, look, I mean, it wouldn't have been that bad. They they would have just released the new software and you know, maybe the network would have been down for like an hour. It's like you're out of your mind. You're absolutely out of your mind if you think that this is an acceptable outcome. <laughs> but anyway. Right. First of all, though, that's acceptable. And second of all, that would actually be what would happen. Yeah, no. What, what would happen it is... Takes, it would take a long time for people to update. And then there's plenty of people who, like, they don't update. It would have know? been a complete Just... mess. And I think that what if, 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 if what... If Segway2x had actually, like, you know, if they had not called it off a couple of weeks beforehand and the bug had been encountered, I think that even if I was for Segwit2x, the correct course of action is to revert to the previous version. And that's what they did in the 0.8 uh, chain split. They reverted to 0.7. You don't try to, like, fix, you know, the, 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 the bugged-out version. You go back to what was working previously, um, and so, yeah, no, that was just software engineering malpractice uh, on an attempt at billions of dollars of value, you know. But anyway, I don't need to get worked up on that. It's already late in the evening. <laughs> womp, womp. Womp, womp. Yeah. All right. So that concludes uh, today's episode. Uh, if you found this episode to be valuable and interesting and amusing and, uh, you know, you, you love the noted podcast, Become a patron on patreon.com slash noted, N-O-D-E-D. Share the podcast with your uh, crypto curious friends. So maybe you can like turn them on to Bitcoin maximalism and they don't become insufferable shit coiners. Um, But yeah, (laughs) find us on on Twitter and uh, yeah. Well, and if you you become a patron on noted, um, you can tune in on usually Sunday evenings for our live streams uh, that these are recorded from. And you can hang out with us in the chat, um, you know, ask us questions, us and our, our guests when we have guests questions directly. Um, it's a lot of fun. So, yep. All right. We'll see you next week. I've been somewhat of a pushover for the majority of my life. Since listening to the podcast, I've been trying to assert myself more. One thing I can't seem to shake is constantly being interrupted. How can I rise above and overcome this obstacle? Should I read, read the hashtag? The there? hashtag fellow hardcore kids. <laughs> hey, there you go. Hey, we'll read. Hardcore kids. And there's a little layer in there because you put rise above in there. So, <laughs> sure. you know, I, I, so I thought about this because I would say I don't get interrupted a lot. But I don't, I think that's kind of the current state yeah. of me. Sure. And I think there's a reason why I don't get interrupted a lot. And it's not because, you know, people are going to think, oh, well, that's because you're going to bash people in the head with a club. Mm-hmm. That's not the actual answer <laughs> of why I don't get interrupted. Yeah, don't so think... w- one thing I think is important is, you've heard me say this before, the less people talk, the more people listen. So when I'm in a group of people that, all want to talk and they all want to talk over each other and they want to cut each other off you get in that group right there i i, I don't talk yeah. <laughs> i don't talk i let their I, I sit there i listen to them and i plot 
and I think, and I put together my thoughts correctly so that when I do decide to say something, it's going to have impact. Hmm. And then I wait for the right moment, right? Because if there's people that are bickering back and forth, I wait for a lull in the fire. And when that lull comes, then I make my point in a very direct manner. I might even I might even have to wait until the conversation is like all but over. Hmm. Wait till they're done with their little firefight. Yep, 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 yep. And then I'm gonna talk. <laughs> like they're done. Mm-hmm. And and what I when I talk, you know, I'm gonna do it since I've been thinking about it, it's gonna be articulated in a way that I can present my full point. And I so I think that's an effective way to do things. I think I think if you let people speak a bunch, you let them get it out of their system, and then when you decide to talk, they don't have anything left to say. So that's a way to stop getting cut off. So this is almost like flanking, right? This mm. is flanking. The fact that when people have a bunch to say and they got all these thoughts in their head and they want to get them all out, let them get them out. Don't try and fight that battle. They've got a bunch of things they want to say. Let them say it. Also, as we know, when you listen to someone else talk, it you you now know what their ideas are. Yeah. <laughs> you know what they're thinking. There's a power in not saying anything because it allows you to think and it allows you to hear what other people think and it allows you to hear other people so in a conversation you get to hear other people's counters to what people are saying and you're not you're not having to expend any ammunition yourself someone else is doing it you know Mm -hmm. the the third or fourth or fifth piece person in the conversation that's expending ammunition and running their mouth to try and counter some point that someone's made let them do that Mm -hmm. because by the way then you get to see what the other counter is Mm -hmm. so I think being assertive doesn't mean talking more I think being assertive means talking less, talking at the appropriate times, monitoring and understanding the firefight that's happening so that when other people have expended their ammunition, you can step in and you can take your shots in a simple, clear, concise manner. That's what I think. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you built up this reputation, though. That's a little added element to your specific situation. Which is what? When you talk, it like you're not saying fluff. You know, you're you know when you talk, it's like something. Well, that's a good point. So if you don't want to get cut off, and seventy percent of the things that you say aren't really that impactful and don't add a lot to the conversation, well, then there's a good chance that when you open your mouth to start talking, someone else doesn't think it's going to be important, so they just jump right on top of you. But if you say less, and to your point, if the things that you say generally are well thought out and clear and are going to have impact, well, then we have a good chance that you're not going to be cut off because people actually want to hear what you're going to say. Yeah. Don't talk just to talk ever. Yeah, see, and that's a hard one. I shouldn't say ever, but hardly ever. Yeah. Yeah, that's a hard one because... And it's not like people are interrupting you on purpose because you don't have nothing to say. You know, like you're just talking fluff. That's not, it's not a conscious on purpose thing. A lot of the time, I think anyway, it doesn't feel like it is. Um, it feels like it's like subconscious, you know, like how can someone see fit to actually follow through with interrupting somebody if they don't think like, okay, this isn't quite that important. At the very least, at the very least, what I'm about to interrupt with is more important. So, so you're saying some think people that. think that what they're about to say is really important. Yeah. Here's another thing. 
It's like the little boy that cried wolf, right? If I yeah. if I talk and talk and talk and talk and talk, I'm taking away the value of each one of those statements that I make yeah, yeah. because I'm making so many statements that not all of them can have a high level of value. Yeah. So if who do you who do you pay more attention to? The person that makes 100 statements? Yeah. And what are those Okay, let's say you want to pay attention to the person that makes 100 statements. How much can you pay attention to those hundred statements, how much do you how much do you gather from those hundred statements? Yeah. It's it's a limited amount. Yeah, it's one percent per statement, right? What's one percent? You have to. Yeah, yeah. You, well, you the guy makes a hundred yeah, statements. Yeah, that's one yeah. percent per statement. If the person says one thing, how much percent do you pay attention to that? 100%. That's right. You said it. hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. So there you go. Yeah, it makes sense, dude. Check.